In July 2019, Pew Research surveyed about 10,000 people here in America, asking them a question, specifically what was their reason or reasons for getting married. And the research found that about 90% testified that one of the main reasons why they were looking to get married was for love. For those also who had gotten married, 66% said it was in seeking companionship. 63% said for formal commitment to make it that covenant. 31% testified that the reason why or responded, the reason why they were looking to get married, or one of those reasons was, is to have children. I think it's important as many folks try to determine who is the one, right? And you're trying to work through why might I get married and why might I consider marrying this specific individual? And you're, you're considering that and maybe it's some of those reasons there on the screen for you of why you got there or maybe why you're moving that direction. Um, I think it's, it's similar as we come to Christ. People are trying to determine or figure out why might they respond to Christ. Why are they coming to Him? Why are they answering the question we're before us today? Jesus, are you the one we should follow? That's the question that John is going to bring before us today in Matthew chapter 11. And he's asking that question. And I think for many of us, right, we, we have those moments in life where we want to believe on Jesus, but often it's because we want him to do a certain thing for us. Um, in Luke chapter 23, there are two thieves, and it tells the story of one thief who, who repents and says, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But one of the other thieves on the cross says to Jesus, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In other words, prove that you're actually the Christ. Do what I think you should do. And I think that reveals a lot of what happens when we come to God. As we think that often in times when things don't go as expected, we begin to question whether or not God or Jesus is actually worth following. Right? I mean, like if things in your life are going well, then it seems easy and good to follow Him. But like if things aren't going well or God's not doing what you had hoped He would do, the temptation can be to quit following or quit following Him as passionately. And I think the text today sets before us this truth. We follow Jesus because of who He is and what He does for us. We follow Jesus because of who He is and what He does for us. And listen, what He does for us is often not what we hope. It's not always what you're hoping will happen or come to pass. And so today I'm going to set maybe four truths before you from this text. Three of them point to the fact that Jesus is in fact the true Messiah. The last one begins to reveal to us who Jesus is at his core. He's going to share with us about who his heart is and maybe one of the most familiar texts we have in the New Testament. So pick up with you would today as we try to answer this question. Jesus, are you the one we should follow? The first truth is this, Jesus is the one we follow because he's the promised Messiah. Jesus is the one that we follow because he is the promised Messiah. Now remember, we talked about it early on as we began studying the book of Matthew, but Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. And for them, it's extremely important to see, is Jesus actually the fulfillment of what the prophets had prophesied? Is he the one that Moses had testified about, that one greater than him who was to come upon the scene? That's to whom they are looking. They're wondering, ultimately, is he the emancipator? Is he the one that can throw off Roman oppression and bring freedom and rule and bring the kingdom of God here to earth? And the problem is he does, but he doesn't do it like they want or they hope in their timetable. And John the Baptist, even John the Baptist, also struggles with that. Listen to what happens here. 
beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? That's our question today that we're after. And I think the rest of Matthew 11 is in answering that question. All right, so that's John's question today. Listen to it again. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Right, the question is, well, John is, where is John according to the text? John is where? Where's John? He's in prison, right? John is in prison because he has been out preaching that King Herod should not, in fact, have his brother Philip's wife. He says, listen, what you have as a wife, she shouldn't be your wife. It cost him being in prison and ultimately he's going to be beheaded because of it. If you remember last week and and the week prior there, weeks prior, we walked through Matthew 10 and Jesus warned about the hatred that would come because of the gospel. And John the Baptist serves as the first reminder of that here in Matthew 11 of the danger and the opposition that will come from preaching and teaching the gospel. But let's be honest, John's question is shocking, isn't it? This is John the Baptist too. This is now Matthew 11, but in Matthew chapter 3, so eight chapters, we just run the text eight chapters, we find John the Baptist there baptizing Jesus. It's at Jesus' baptism that the heavens open and the Father says, this is my Son with whom I love, with Him I'm well pleased. It is at the Jesus' baptism where John is baptizing Him that the heavens open and the Spirit descends like what? Like a dove and rest upon him. And John himself testifies saying, I would not have known it was actually the Messiah if it had not been the fulfillment of what the Father had said. He said, the one you see the Spirit descend and rest upon, he's the Messiah. John's convinced. And now that same John in verse 3 of Matthew 11 asks this question. Are you the one? Is that a shocking statement? And we have to ask, what, what is happening? I mean, does John have spiritual amnesia? Has he forgotten about the baptism? Has he forgot about the Spirit? Has he forgot about the Father speaking? The reminder is this. When life goes bad, our faith can falter. It can begin to crumble and shake and you begin to wonder, God, are you really there? God, do you really care about me? Jesus, where are you? Because see, here's what John's wrestling with. If Jesus, you're actually the one, then why is my life going so bad? You ever wondered that? You ever had seasons where things for you didn't get better? You wondered, right, well, Jesus, if you're the one, then why is my diagnosis still the same? Jesus, if you're the one and we're trying to honor you, then why haven't our finances gotten better? Jesus, if you're the one, then why is that person that I love still ruled by addiction? You see, the Jews, they were living under Roman rule. And like John, things were going poorly for them. And it seems natural for any of us to begin to question if God is actually worth following and things go bad. Nevertheless, this text continually points us back that Jesus is in fact the one and He's worthy of your surrender and your following even when things don't go your way. And listen to Jesus' answer to John's question. Are you the one who is to come? Jesus affirms, listen, John, you should follow me and everyone else. You should follow me because I'm truly the Messiah. Listen to what he says beginning here now in verse 4. And Jesus answers John's disciples. Remember, because John's in prison, he sent messengers. The messengers will go back with this answer. Go and tell John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Right? Each of these are fulfillments. We don't have time, but if you, if you have a Bible, it may, in, down below that somewhere in the footnotes, it may start marking all these texts of Isaiah, 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 Isaiah. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the fulfillment of everything that Isaiah had prophesied. Everything that he appointed to. And if you've been with us for years previous, we walked through the entire book of Isaiah. And so many of these things, hopefully you remember, those were the very promises that Isaiah was saying would in fact, that's how you would know the Messiah. All of these are supernatural acts pointing the fact that Jesus is in fact no ordinary man, but indeed the one. But here's what's hard for John. That despite all of these things, John's still in prison. And I think that relates to something that most of us as Christians have to deal with. Times when God seemingly intervenes in the lives of others, but doesn't intervene the way you hoped or won in your own life. You ever had those moments? That difficulty, that tension that arrives in your own heart and mind where you begin to wonder why is God seemingly doing that for them and not for us? Jesus says to John seemingly here, who I am is sufficient and demanding of your worship even when I don't change your circumstances. And listen, Jesus knows this is difficult because listen to what He says at the end, verse 6 of Matthew 11. And blessed is the one who is not what? Offended by me. Jesus knows at least it's an easy temptation to become offended. To become frustrated when God seemingly works in the lives of others and not you. When God is God over all and yet your circumstances and predicaments don't change. It was in John 21. It's following the resurrection. And Peter is walking along. The other disciples, that's where they recognized Jesus on the shore. And John jumped out of the boat, remember, and swam. And they had a little breakfast there on the beach. And Jesus was reinstating Peter and sharing with him some of those great truths. And Peter asked this question about him. He says to Jesus, hey, listen, as Jesus is talking to Peter about his life, he says, well, what about John? John the apostle, John the disciple. Brother Todd began walking through the gospel of John Wednesday night, and he's talking about that disciple, so not John the Baptist. And he says, well, what about him? And Jesus seemingly responds to Peter this. He says to him, listen, don't worry about him. Focus on what I'm doing in your life. In other words, God is working uniquely in each of our lives today. He's the commander-in-chief. We, like good servants, are to put our hand to the plow and to keep following Him. It is, as the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on who? Jesus, the author and the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. It is Christ whom we look. And so the reminder today is maybe you've had the temptation to look around at others and their life seems to be more blessed and going better and things are better for them. And Jesus compels us all, come and look at me. I am the true Messiah. I am the only one who can do what your heart longs for. And he's going to show us what the ultimate longing of the heart is as he comes. So a reminder today, as we come to Jesus because of who he is and what he will do for us, even when what he will do isn't what we had hoped or asked. Secondly, Jesus is the one we follow because John is in fact the Elijah who is to come. Jesus is the one that we follow where he proves his messiahship by the fact that John is the Elijah who is to come. This seems almost a continuation of the first truth, but listen to what happens here. So John's messengers, they begin to go away. Verse 7 tells us, and Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He says, what would you go out into the wilderness to see? 
a reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. That's the first clue. He's going somewhere. This is he of whom it is written. So now he's telling us that John is the fulfillment of some prophecy of Scripture. Right? He's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. And so we're going to see how, what's that mean, but it'd be more than a prophet. Listen what he says. This is he of whom it is written. And he's citing Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Listen what he says about it. Malachi 3, verse 1. It's the fulfillment passage here. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. It was prophesied at John's birth in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, that he would come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. The question was by many is, was John in fact Elijah back, from, back right from heaven? John emphatically says in John chapter 1, verse 21, that he is not physically, literally Elijah. Thus, if John the messenger, as Malachi promised, has come, this must in fact mean, according to Jesus, that he is indeed the Messiah. John's coming declares to everyone the Messiah is coming or the Messiah is here. Therefore, it's one of the primary ways that we see the prophecies working. They point us to something, right? And that fulfillment comes. And when that fulfillment comes, it reminds all of us to look unto the Lord. To realize the time of the Lord is at hand. And so Jesus is saying, listen, John, and to all the crowd, I am the one true Messiah. Because the Elijah who was to come is here. I think it's important for us to see that John's true identity can't be ultimately understood from first recognizing who Jesus is. Right? I mean, to truly understand who John is, we have to understand who Jesus is. And it's in understanding who Jesus is, and that's kind of his response back to John when, are you the one, right? I'm trying to understand my identity, my purpose. And he says, listen, I want you to know he doesn't respond back to John about who John is. He responds back to John about who he is. And I think it's a reminder to all of us, listen today, if you're trying to figure out your purpose and meaning in life, if you keep looking here, you'll not find it. You must look to the cross and to Christ. That's where you find your meaning and purpose in life. Why? Because you find the one who came and died for you, who gave his life as your ransom, who died as your substitute on the cross. When you find Christ, you see that you are indeed sinful and separated from a holy God, and yet God in his love has sent his son for you. That that means that you have true value and purpose beyond what you see in the mirror, beyond what your test score says, beyond what car you drove today, or the house you live in, or what your bank account says, or how many Facebook friends friends you have or how many likes your most recent posts receive what your life purpose and meaning is is ultimately found only in jesus that's the place to rest in your identity beloved your 401k your likes your friends your relationships all kinds of things can come and go there's one thing that's constant and it's christ and jesus says to everyone i am the one true messiah because john is in fact the elijah who is to come Furthermore, look what he says to him. Um, Let's read here in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. It's a reminder to us in Christ that, listen, if you follow Christ, you are going to face opposition, in fact, physical opposition and suffering. Many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world are experiencing that today, here and now. Here in America, we might be wise to recognize and see it's coming. 
for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, listen to what he says here. So he's again, he's prophesying until John, right? So he's speaking now about John. And if you are willing to accept that he is, John is, who is John? The Elijah who what? Who is to come. He who has an ear, let him hear. So Jesus says that he is Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. So we'll all go over Malachi 3, 1. This is now Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Listen to what Malachi 4, 5 says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. John says that Jesus, or Jesus says that John is the Elijah who is to come, right? So again, here's the question. They're confused, right? The Elijah the prophet is going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Jesus says to us, if you are willing to accept it, that John is Elijah who is to come. He's saying he's the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, Malachi even 3, 1, right? This does not mean that John is Elijah literally, okay? This doesn't mean that. John himself, in fact, denied that. In a similar way, Jesus functions as the one true David, the king that was to come. But this doesn't mean that Jesus is physically David raised from the dead, right? One, we know that because David had a sin, sinful heart, right? Jesus doesn't. He's born of a virgin. But the reminder is, is if John is so clearly Elijah who was to come, and thus it implies that Jesus is the Lord who was coming after him, then why don't people respond? Why don't they see that if John's the true Elijah that was to come, and Jesus is the ultimate prophet and Messiah that was to come after, the, after Elijah, then why don't they respond to him? Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 11. But what to but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. A dirge is a funeral song, right? They're saying, listen, the music's playing. You guys aren't dancing. The truth is here. John and Jesus are sharing the gospel. Jesus is performing these great miracles. And yet they refuse because John and Jesus do not conform to their expectations and do what they want. And that happens with so many people. I tried Jesus. I tried God. I tried church. It didn't work. Because they were looking for God to do what they wanted him to do. And when things didn't go their way, they're done with God and on to the next thing. I think we ought to notice a theme, maybe. John the Baptist struggles because Jesus doesn't do what he had hoped he would do. Throw off ultimately Roman oppression, right? He's trying to answer the question, why am I in prison if you're the Messiah? Right? Even John struggles to understand what the Messiah was doing in its fullness, right? There's a struggle, and the disciples are struggling to see. The people struggle because just like John... Because John and Jesus aren't doing what they want. Thus it's likely that if Jesus doesn't perform or do what we had hoped, then we are likely maybe to begin doubting him and some begin to reject him altogether. Yet this text shows us that he is the one even when he doesn't wave the magic wand over our lives and fix and make everything better. Thus by faith we trust him even when we don't understand what he's doing. Hear it again. Thus, this text reminds us that by faith we trust in Christ even when we don't understand what he's doing. If you walk through Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, there's a reminder of the text. Remember, verse 1 began prophesying that this messenger would come and prepare the way before. Well, verses 2 through 5 of Malachi 3 speak of what 
ultimately the Messiah will do when he comes on the scene. It says that he will bring one judgment and two, he will purify sinners. And the end of Matthew chapter 11, I think, points us in both of those directions. It reminds us of the judgment, saying again, this is the promised Messiah. And then it shows us how he brings mercy, forgiveness, grace, and he purifies sinners. So let's look at those last two things as the text comes to a close. Jesus is the one we follow, right? Here's the third truth. Jesus is the one we follow because he's judge of the earth, right? So Jesus is the one we follow because he is judge of the earth. I flipped over there, maybe too quick. No, look what he says here. Then he began, verse 20, to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So again, Jesus is going to begin talking about, again, the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. These mighty miracles, I mean the things he had done, he begins to denounce them specifically why. What's the issue? They didn't what? They did not repent, right? You see that? That's the issue. It's Christ came on the scene, they heard the view of the gospel, they saw the mighty works, and yet they refused to repent. Look what he says, beginning in verse 21 now, Matthew 11. Again, seeing this fulfillment of Malachi 3, he is the Lord, he brings judgment. That's what Matthew's showing us first here. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For, here's why, here's why these woes are pronounced, right? So you're wondering, why is he saying woe to them, right? A woe is a word of judgment. For, if the mighty works done in you, the mighty works point to the miracles, right? I mean, think about all the things that Christ has done. We just heard, he told John the Baptist about. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, okay? So Tyre and Sidon were Old Testament places where the prophets often spoke about Baal, was worshipped there. They were extremely materialistic, right? And so they were often being denounced by the Old Testament prophets. They were hearing, woe to you, Tyre, woe to you, Sidon, right? Because of your actions. And Jesus says to them, listen again, this is, this is a powerful statement. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. The very thing, again, so they would have repented. The thing that they are not willing to do, he says, these people would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So thinking about this, the places where Jesus is. So again, when he thinks about Capernaum, right, he writes and speaks about some of these locations in which he's acting. Um, Capernaum functioned as one of the primary cities that Jesus worked out of, right? And through Capernaum, he heals all kinds of diseases. He um, he cast out in their synagogue. A man comes in demon-possessed. He cast out the demon. Uh, Capernaum is where he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Capernaum is the place where the the friends bring that, that brother who can't walk, this lame, and they tear the roof off and lower him down and he heals. It's the place where he encounters the Roman servant and says to him, go, and, and as your faith is said, your servant will be healed. And so he's done all of these mighty works there and yet they refuse they don't repent they don't believe i think it brings us to an important point many of us think that if god will just do this one thing then i will believe god if you'll just do this then i'll really be serious about church god if you just do this in my life then i'll really get committed god like some of you are saying that like when i get married i'm really going to be serious about it when i have kids then i'll be really serious because i want my kids there when I, get a little, when I get into college, then I'll be more free, and then I'll be really serious about it. When I get out of college, then I'll be serious about following you. It's this reminder for all of us, listen, we just keep thinking this next thing, God, if you'll just do this, or this next season of my life comes, then that's when I'll really get serious about you. And the reminder is, listen, these guys have seen miracles before their eyes, and yet they refuse to repent. 
If raising someone from the dead doesn't guarantee people will repent and believe, beloved, we must caution ourselves to come and say, all I need is Christ, that name that we've been singing about. It's interesting, right, that Jesus writes further. Look what he says here, or it speaks further. Verse 22, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. We've been talking about Capernaum, right, where all these miracles had happened. Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. That's another word of speaking of hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, right? So Sodom, the place of Genesis 18 and 19, where rampant homosexuality was, where God brings judgment down because of their wickedness, right? Genesis 18 and 19. He says, if the mighty works had been done in you, it had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And then listen to the statement. Again, speaking about Jesus, this one judge, right? This is a reason why we are recognized he is the one. Look what he says, verse 24. This, is, this, is, this, this may mess with you a little bit, but you need to understand and hear it. But I tell you that it will be, look what he says here, this statement, more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. From this verse and others in the New Testament, we begin to realize that everyone will not be punished the same in hell. Listen again to Jesus' statement. Again, this is, this is one that you need to try to wrestle with a little bit. Verse 24, Matthew 11. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So presumably to Capernaum where they have seen these miracles and seen Christ there, they now are going to be judged with a greater strictness and receive a greater judgment. Presumably for them, it will be less tolerable. They will experience an even more intense suffering, right? You hear maybe other places where some will beat with some rods and some with many rods. Maybe today it ought to sound the alarm for some of us who have constantly heard this word proclaimed week after week, year after year, and yet you continue to close and harden your heart to it. Beloved, there'll be no excuse on the day of judgment. Jesus is warning here about the danger of hell and the judgment that is to come. But yet, even in the midst of this, don't we see the beauty of Christ? That He speaks there of Sodom and the reality is, listen, we are all wicked and evil and yet God in His mercy and grace sends Jesus to tell us the good news. He sends the gospel here to us today, the Word of God, to proclaim to us the truth That today, if you would hear this gospel and repent, that you won't have to experience this judgment. That Jesus comes, as Paul says, to save you from the wrath and judgment that is to come. It is the good news of the gospel. And he warns that this judgment is coming and says, because of this judgment, I want you to know and see that I am, in fact, the one. Remember, Malachi's prophecy was that as... This one who was to come, the messenger that would go before him, who Jesus says is John the Baptist. And Jesus is now on the scene. Malachi says that the Messiah will bring judgment, but he will also be a refiner. He will purify the people. He will show them mercy and grace. And that's where Matthew turns as Matthew 11 comes to the end. And we bring our last truth. Jesus is the one we follow because he alone can give us rest. Jesus is the one we follow because he alone can give us rest rest at that time verse 25 of matthew 11 jesus declares i thank you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children 
This is a challenging statement, right? There's some hard text right here, okay? Look what he says again. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. These things refer again back to the miracles, back to the works, back to the truth of the gospel. Look what it says here. This is a hard teaching. That you have hidden these things. So Jesus says the Father has done something. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And then notice what the statement is. You've revealed them to who? Little children. Scholar D.A. Carson writes, The point of interest is not their education about the wise and understanding any more than the point of interest is about the little children is about their age or size. The contrast is between those who are self-sufficient and think they have no need, they are wise and understanding, and those who on the other end are like little children and are loving to be taught and dependent. You see, the wise and understanding are those who might scoff at the idea that Jesus is the only way. They might concede that He is a way, but not the way. They're even willing, right, listen, to make concessions about Jesus being a good man or a good person or doing good things, but they don't believe that He's the true Messiah. Why? Because they're wise in their own eyes. They think they understand and know the truth. And Jesus says it's hidden from the wise and understanding, the proud, the arrogant. But he says that God delights in revealing it to the little children. In Matthew 18, he writes about the little children. Jesus speaks about them and says that they are those who are humble and willing to listen, to hear, to recognize that they have a need and only God can meet that need. This is a difficult statement, right? By Jesus saying that he's hiding it from some and revealing it to others. And then look what he says in verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was what? Your gracious will. He speaks of the will of the Father and he says, this is actually gracious that God is revealing the gospel to some. He says, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It is God's gracious will to reveal the gospel. Look what Jesus says to them further. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus makes three things to declare in this passage that He is in fact co-equal with the Father. Look what He says here. He notices first that He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. As He says in Matthew 28, He has all authority in heaven and earth. Secondly, look what He says here. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. So Jesus says that He knows the Father, the unknowable God, the limitless God. Jesus says, I want you to know that I know Him fully and completely. No man can make this claim. This is God in the flesh, beloved. And then third, Jesus says this statement, He he alone knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son, notice what He says here, chooses to reveal him if you come to jesus looking for him to do what you want you won't find the god that you're looking for for those who will humbly come and say there is no other way that i can make it on my own there is hope because jesus says in john 6 and 37 that those who come to me i will by no means cast away or drive out 
This, beloved, is a hard teaching of Christ. But before you push it away, listen to the context in which it finds itself, which is maybe some of the most familiar teaching we have in the entire New Testament. So that is a tough teaching, verses 24 there through 27. But listen to what he says now in verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus obviously doesn't want people going around wondering, well, I wonder if God wants to reveal himself to me or not. Jesus himself gives the invitation, come to me, what? All. Jesus invites everyone in the midst of saying there are some in which he's revealing the gospel to these little children. There are some in which he's choosing to reveal the father to them. Now he stands and looks to everyone and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden or who labor and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. It's a beautiful moment, right? As you and I, the reality is we too are called to go and tell everyone, invite everyone, come to Christ. It's not our job to go around and think, well, this person might be more willing to listen than this person. And this person might be more open than this person. We're to share the gospel with anyone and everyone that God places in our path as the Spirit of God leads us. And that's what Jesus is showing us here In the midst of a challenging moment, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice what he says here again. This is some super rich teaching. But come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It appears that what might keep us from coming is the fact that we're laboring and heavy laden. We're trying to do it on our own. That's what was happening with so many of the religious people of that day. They were trying to keep God's law good enough on their own. And so they had made even further rules so they wouldn't even get close to disobeying God's law. And they were wearing themselves and the people down. The truth is, in our strength, none of us here are good enough. None of us here are sufficient. Being wise in your own eyes, understanding in your own eyes, will only block your entrance to the kingdom. You must realize that you need rest. And you'll never be able to find it on your own. It's just the beauty of Christ. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden. And he he says again, I will give you rest. It's the moment of the gospel. Jesus is showing us that, listen, no matter what you may try to do to get to God on your own, every one of those fail because every one of those is an attempt in your own strength to make it there on your own. Jesus says, listen, I want you to stop looking to yourself and look to me because to answer John's question, I am the one. I'm the only one that can give you the rest that your heart longs for. So come to me. Thus, we've been saying today, we come to Jesus because of who he is and what he will do for us. And that what he does for us is he gives us rest. Rest from having to labor. Rest from trying to be good enough. Rest from trying to do enough good things to feel like we're worthy, that God will somehow accept us. It is rest, beloved, in the grace and the mercy of God. Listen to what he says to them further. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Three specific things that I think he's showing us here. One, he invites us to come. Secondly, he says, now we are to take... And then he says, thirdly to us, we are to learn. We've already talked about what it means to come to him and find rest as we repent and believe. Stop refusing, believing on him. But he says to us also that we are to take my yoke upon you, right? It might sound a little counterintuitive, right? Because the reality is these folks have been laboring and heavy laden. The yoke is 
symbolic, right, a metaphor for the oxen that would carry this heavy load that would be labor this big, long wooden beam over their neck. And Jesus is saying now there's another yoke, but this yoke, according to his own words in verse 30 is, for my yoke is what? Easy and my burden is what? Light. The yoke is easy, it's good, the burden is light. Why? Because he's burdened the load of living perfectly. The burden of having to live a perfect, sinless life, you will never be able to carry that burden. And if you think you are, you're deceived. There's none of us here who are sinless. There's none of us here who are perfect. But there was one, beloved, the true Messiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, the answer to John's question, the answer to your question. There is one. His name is Jesus. He lives a sinless, perfect life, therefore dying on the cross, not bearing His sin, but yours. Your sin is now by faith, by grace, through faith. Christ's sin, His sinless life is credited to you. Your sinful life is credited to Him that you don't have to carry the burden of trying to be perfect in the presence of God because it's a charade and a mask. And some of you, listen, if you're wearing it today, I compel you, take that body off. Come to Christ. Take His yoke. It's easy and His burden is light. Why? Because He gives you the power of the Holy Spirit to live in the strength of the Spirit. It's Christ who now lives in you to empower you to live differently. But He says to us, not only we're to take His yoke upon us, He says you're also to learn from Me. So we're to come to Him, we're to take His yoke, and He says you are to learn from Me. Charles Simeon, he was a faithful preacher who pastored the Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge um, from 1782 to his death in 1836. He speaks on this passage and shares three truths that I thought were insightful in light of learning from me. He said we needed to be teach, we need to be teachable like children. We need to submit and receive the Word of God. And when we hear a preacher or a teacher teaching something that's contradictory to the Scriptures, we must reject that teaching. And if need be, we need to reject them. Now, it's possible, right, they've gotten off course. And so we want to warn them and show them. But, beloved, if you're continually seeing and watching someone on TV or listening to their podcast... Or listen, as we learned yesterday, we were talking about a book in our scholastic reading book for our kids, this book about God. And God's answering all these kids' questions and telling them things that are absolutely contradictory to the Scriptures. Beloved, we must reject that. And we must be aware and vigilant. They're marking it to your kids. God's answers. It's shocking to hear the answers of who, what God says back to them. Beloved, As we learn from Him, we are learning the Scriptures and rejecting those who teach things that are contrary to this Word. Secondly, we must learn with the diligence of students. We are to thirst for knowledge, reading the Word, searching as for hidden treasures, meditating upon God's Word day and night, as the psalmist says. We are praying that the Spirit will give us illumination to allow us to understand the truths of what God's Word says. Thirdly, as we learn from Him, we are to learn the obedience of devoted followers. We're having knowledge. Listen, having all this knowledge is no use if it doesn't purify our heart and lives. Amen? This is not simply an exercise today to come and acquire more information. It is for transformation of our lives. That we might live this truth. He says, and I quote here, Charles Simeon says, and I quote, Whatever we find to be the mind and will of God, that we must do without hesitation and without reserve. Listen to that again. 
Whatever we find to be the mind and will of God, that we must do without hesitation and without reserve. Listen, why would we live in such a way? Jesus says the answer is this, for I am, what is Jesus? He is what? Gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle is the opposite of violence and vengeance. Right? This gentleness, this, this willingness to endure, lowly indicates great humility. It's willing to put others before yourself. It's a beautiful moment in Numbers chapter 12 when Moses is there and his, his family even is coming against him. The people are coming against him. They're criticizing. They're plotting. They're working against him. Guess what Moses doesn't do? He doesn't fight back. Moses doesn't answer his critics. Moses doesn't get angry. He doesn't seek revenge. He doesn't argue or try to explain his actions. He doesn't complain. He keeps silent and lets the Lord take up his cause. And when Moses actually opens his mouth, this is what we see him doing. Praying. Moses is a great example to us all of what it means to be gentle and lowly in heart. And to an even greater extent, we see Christ as he is being falsely accused and mocked and ultimately taken to the cross at the hands of sinners. And yet he says from the cross, Father, what? Forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And the beauty is that Christ upon the cross speaks that to you today. Father, forgive them. Beloved, here's a place for you to finally rest. To find forgiveness. To no longer have to be laboring and trying to be good enough. And the beauty is, Jesus says, for I am gentle and lowly. Notice what he says here. This is his heart. This is God's heart revealed. John's asking, are you the one? And he's shown us by many actions and all these fulfillments of prophecy. And now I think the greatest display is he says, guys, here's my heart. Here's my heart. I am gentle and lowly. This is who I am at my core. He receives sinners, the worst of them. And because it's his heart, he never tires of doing so. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, asked this. Do you know what Jesus does with those who squander His mercy, He pours out more mercy. God is rich in mercy. That's the whole point. Whether we have sinned against or have sinned ourselves into misery, the Bible says God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed, not frugal, but lavish, not poor, but rich. He is gentle and lowly at heart, beloved. Come to Him. Come to Him to find forgiveness. You will find rest for your souls, beloved. It's what you ultimately need and desire. The answer to your question and John's question, are you the one? The answer is the name of Jesus. We didn't focus on it earlier, but John's question was, are you the one or should we look for someone else? See, that's what often happens, right? If Jesus isn't the one, then we got to look somewhere else, right? I mean, that's what John knows. That's what we know, right? I mean, if he's not actually the one, then, then we need to look somewhere else. John's saying, should I just go looking somewhere else? And that's the temptation you may think. Surely if he's the one, then he would have done this in my life. But that, beloved, he has done the ultimate thing that you need. He's given his life for you. It's the hope of the gospel, beloved. He is the one. To John, he is the one. To us, he is the one. 
The temptation is, though, because we are broken people, we come to the healer and try to fix him. We try to make God in our image instead of, as Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am the healer. I fix you, the broken. Today, beloved, the beautiful moment is you can come to him as you are. The call is to come in repentance as he says. Repent, Jesus is saying. Turn from that way of life, that sin, looking unto Christ and the power of God's Holy Spirit, believing and having faith in him. Today, hear the words of Christ. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Beloved, if you need rest today, it's only found in one name, the name of Jesus. Would you come and put your faith and trust in him? Believer, I know your things. Many of you are facing challenging, difficult seasons I can't promise you that things will change for you. But I want you to know that there is one who is sufficient. He will sustain you and give you the endurance and the grace and the peace to keep walking that path. He's the one who will carry the burden. The yoke he gives to you is easy and light. Would you come to him? I pray you would. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray now. That this invitation that you gave all those years ago, 2,000 plus almost, would come real in the hearts and minds of your people. May they come to you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.